Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And that's pretty much all the information I have to offer at this stage. <laughs> it's not firing over here. It's the synapses are asleep. It's something to do with daylight savings or something. I don't know. Yeah, daylight savings is uh, probably a part of it. And uh, the fact that there was boxing to watch late last night, early this morning. I personally was out at a bat mitzvah until midnight and then had to watch the boxing. So uh, synapses uh, are not firing well over here either. But uh, we'll soldier on as as we tend to do. I'm a little bummed uh, this week, of course, with uh, so much bad news in the world. First, we had Luke Perry, RIP. Then we had King Kong Bundy, RIP. And then we had the news that Alex Trebek has stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, So in tribute to Mr. Trebek this week on the podcast, uh, we'll be phrasing all of our answers in the form of a question. Although, eh, I don't don't know quite how that's going to work. Seem good on paper. Right. Well, just like the intonation at the end of everything will just be upward. There you go. We could do that. I, I here. I have an idea for a tribute to Trebek. Uh, name name three fighters for me, Karen. Just list three fighters. First three boxers who come to mind. God, I'm so messed up. I got um, the the <laughs> guy the guy who threw 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 those punches the other day. Um, the other guy and the the third one. Okay. Uh, who are three people who've never been in my kitchen? <laughs> well, I'd be one. <laughs> That's true. You've never been in my kitchen. There you oh. go. That, oh. that joke would have worked a lot better if you'd actually named people, but I think it worked well enough and people either got it or they didn't. I don't think anybody's listening anymore, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Maybe we, should, maybe we should use this podcast as campaign for Saturday afternoon fights. Oh, listen, you don't need to twist my arm. <laughs> All fights begin at 10 a.m. and are over by 2 p.m. I'm yes. on board. Yes, that's right. Of course, the real answer comes to five minutes later is there are only three fighters worth mentioning and they are Miguel Cotto, Miguel Cotto, and Miguel Cotto. <laughs> and those three people have never been in my kitchen. Also, so there you go. I'm two-thirds of the way to answering that, that other question. <laughs> All right. So obviously everybody's now on tenterhooks to know what we have <laughs> ahead of us. Um, we do have a couple of fights to review, uh, specifically a close and marginally controversial points win for Sean Porter and a wide decision win, nonetheless, with a couple of slightly shaky moments for Dimitri Bivol. Uh, we have a fair amount of news to discuss, uh, but we're going to start things off with an in-depth look at what is easily the biggest fight on the boxing calendar for the month of March. Uh, this Saturday in Arlington, Texas, on Fox pay-per-view, two unbeaten pound-for-pounders meet when the world's top junior welterweight, Mikey Garcia, moves up to 147 pounds to face arguably the best fighter in arguably boxing's best division, Errol Spence Jr. Uh, the biggest plot here, other than the fact that these are two prime undefeated pound-for-pounders, is the size difference. Um, and that's really been the hot topic of conversation since this fight was signed. Simply, is Spence too big for Garcia? Uh, so it can be instructive in situations like this to look at some historical comps. I might not be able to mention three active boxers, but we do... <laughs> we, we have delved a little bit into the history books. Uh, Eric, uh, let's give us a few cases of note where two elite fighters have met in the past, and the bigger man is the one who's prevailed. 
So this goes against my nature somewhat, because as longtime listeners know, a cornerstone of my boxing belief set is that most people way overrate the significance of size. Uh, My position is that the bigger man rarely wins just because he's bigger. He has to also be better. So I have a few examples here of fights between all-time greats who were a weight class or two apart, and the bigger man prevailed. And people can debate how much size had to do with the end result, Uh, starting with a fight that I'm pretty sure neither of us were ringside for. Jack Johnson versus Stanley Ketchell, <laughs> uh, the heavyweight champ against the middleweight champ. Johnson was essentially carrying Ketchell. Then Ketchell got bold in the 12th round and tried to win, and Johnson wasted no time knocking him out. Um, many times, the light heavyweight champion has moved up to challenge the heavyweight champ, uh, none more famous than Billy Kahn taking on Joe Lewis in 1941. Khan was boxing brilliantly and was ahead on two scorecards when Lewis knocked him out in the 13th round. Uh, In the 70s, light heavyweight champ Bob Foster took on two of the all-time heavyweight greats with disastrous results, knocked out in two rounds by Joe Frazier and in eight rounds by Muhammad Ali. And a couple of more modern examples. Uh, Oscar De La Hoya moved up one weight class too many, uh, but was competitive Mm. in the fight until middleweight champ Bernard Hopkins stopped him with a single body shot. And Juan Manuel Marquez, probably the only time in his career he was ever overmatched in terms of skill, uh, but he was also clearly outsized. In his first fight above lightweight, he took on welterweight Floyd Mayweather and lost all 12 rounds. So those are some examples of a great bigger man beating a great smaller man, Mm. although you can make the case that in every one of those examples, maybe the bigger man was just plain better. Right. Of course, I can think of one case where the bigger man probably, well, certainly wasn't better, but it was just too damn hot. Ah, I know where you're going. Sugar Ray Robinson, Joey Maxim. That mm-hmm. was perhaps the one of the more bizarre endings to uh, to an effort of a, of a very, very, very good smaller man taking on the bigger man, I guess. Uh, so hot in that fight. Uh, Robinson, at that point, the middleweight uh, champ taking on light heavyweight champ Joey Maxim. It was so hot. How, How hot, hot was, was it? it? <laughs> But the referee actually had to be replaced during the course of the contest. Uh, so that's one that. So really, size not so much a factor there as heat. Right. Although I, I suppose you could say that maybe Maxim's size allowed him to withstand the heat better, Perhaps. or and you know any any leaning and clinches uh, would have would have worn Robinson down more. But uh, yeah, it, it was uh, certainly a case where the heat more than Joey Maxim defeated Sugar Ray Robinson. Yes, indeed. Uh, All right. uh, Give us the flip side, Kieran. Which fights stand out for you in which an elite fighter moving up in weight beat an elite bigger fighter? So interestingly, a fair few of the success stories here involve very good lighter weight fighters stepping up to meet very good welterweights. Um, uh, Intriguingly, given that, uh, you know, what we're looking at for Saturday, Uh, perhaps Mm -hmm. most famous it's the first Roberto Duran Ray Leonard meeting in mm-hmm. June 1980. Leonard, the undefeated golden boy of boxing, Duran, the snarling, aggressive, longtime lightweight champ. One of the things that I actually found kind of funny was um, Joe Frazier was doing the color commentary for that first fight and um, was asked as Duran walked to the ring looking very intense, say, hey, Joe, who does he remind you of? The idea being that Joe would say me, but instead he just looks at Duran and goes, Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Duran overcoming Leonard over 15 rounds that night in, in Montreal. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Leonard was something of a golden boy. And there's actually a couple of solid examples here involving the latter-day golden boy himself, uh, Oscar De La Hoya. Um, he fell short on points against former lightweight 
a champ, Shane Mosley, in a terrific fight at the Staples Center in Los Angeles in June 2000. Um, Mosley undefeated. De La Hoya had one highly contentious defeat on his record. Um, Mosley had been a fantastic lightweight champ. He'd had gone up to welterweight, uh, had a couple of fights at welterweight to get used to the weight before taking on De La Hoya. Um, uh, but a very good fight, that. Um, and also another case of a lighterweight fighter defeating De La Hoya at welterweight was Oscar's very final fight against Manny Pacquiao. Pacquiao moving up directly two weight divisions from lightweight. Uh, the added wrinkle here, of course, was that Delaware moved back down from junior middleweight and the effort right. uh, clearly destroyed him even before Pacquiao did. Um, Michael Spinks, the longtime light heavyweight champion, stepped up to heavyweight to halt Larry Holmes' progress toward equaling he can't carry my jockstrap Rocky Marciano's unbeaten professional record. He dropped Holmes to 48-1 and via a controversial decision and then made it 48-2 and in the rematch. Um, uh, it's not an elite fighter against an elite fighter, but we should mention, you know, Roy Jones also doing something similar, uh, the former middleweight and super middleweight and light heavyweight champ moving up to heavyweight and dominating John Ruiz, not winning the heavyweight championship of the world, which was right. the property of Lennox Lewis, but he did get an alphabet belt. Um, I just mentioned Sugar Ray Robinson. Um, we go back the end of 1942, welterweight Sugar Ray Robinson, who had been a professional prize fighter for all of two years and had already built up a record of something like 35-0, and 0, uh, depending on uh, which record books uh, you believe. Uh, he took on middleweight Jake LaMotta, used his boxing skills to win a 10-round decision. And after that, the two men looked at each other and said, well, we've done that once. No need to do that again, they said. <laughs> Um, Robinson, of course, would ultimately be universally regarded as the greatest boxer of all time, pound for pound. If there is a good strong challenger to that crown it's surely henry armstrong um and he's a textbook case uh, a guy who really fits into this in 1938 armstrong who was then the featherweight world champion leaped all the way up to welterweight and took the title from barney ross and then he dropped down to lightweight and won that title uh really armstrong just the absolute epitome of guys moving up and down in weight and beating really really good prize fighters at a time where they were almost a dime a dozen yeah, plenty, plenty of good examples there. Uh, you were correct to single out John Ruiz as, you know, a little different than all of Not the other least. names on the list. Uh, um, and uh, poor Oscar De La Hoya isn't coming I off know. well on either of our lists. Uh, losing to smaller guys, losing to bigger guys. Um, but although those ones that you mentioned, some of them, uh, particularly the Pacquiao-De La Hoya fight, the Sphinx-Holmes fight, stand out as cases of the smaller fighter catching the bigger fighter at the right time. Um, that isn't the case with Spence. Uh, he, he's in his prime at 29. So if he's truly great, he should beat Mikey. And if he isn't quite truly great and Mikey is, then I think maybe Mikey beats him. The prevailing school of thought, however, it seems, based on my informal survey of my Twitter feed over the last couple of months, <laughs> is that Mikey is reaching too far here. He was... A featherweight not that long ago, he campaigned as high as Junior Welter, but in his last fight was a lightweight. Spence is going to be too big. Uh, again, lots of people, from casual fans to even hardcore fans, have that attitude that size is everything. With that in mind, is this fight, to some degree, a no-win for Spence, where he won't get credit, even if he takes care of business? I'm not sure about that, simply because even if it's taken a while for Garcia to be fully appreciated, I think he is, his his ability is really appreciated now, and he's really shown it 
um, over the last few years, uh, particularly since he's come back from being, you know, sitting on the shelf. Um, you know, before he sat on the shelf for a couple of years, he was, a, you know, a featherweight and a junior lightweight, and he was a boxer first and not necessarily terribly exciting. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, since then, you know, he's fought as often at 140 as he has at 135. Um, 140 pretty much dominated Adrian Bronner, which at the time was still considered a reasonable scalp. Um, at 135, he annihilated Dejan Zlatikanen with a KO of the year quality uh, stoppage. Um, and he comfortably defeated a very promising Robert Easter Jr. So it's possible that 147 is a step too far, and, you know, particularly against a big and good well to like Spence. But I think he's done enough at 35 and 40 and it's sufficiently highly regarded that whatever happens, you know, uh, if Spence does win him, I would like to think that he will get the credit for being a very good fighter rather than, you know, just being being too big. And, and even if he loses, uh, hopefully, you know, Garcia would be the guy that gets the credit. I right. do wonder, though, if he might get the least credit, Spence, if he just does blow Garcia out, because right. then it would be a case of, oh, yeah, Mikey just wasn't big enough for him and he just just walked through him. Uh, it's, it seems weird, but I almost feel like the more competitive it is, the more credit Spence might get one way or the other. But um, but we'll see. I, I, I think part of what feeds into that um, is that we're still actually trying to figure out who Errol Spence is and how good he is. Um, and I think part of that is because even if Mikey Garcia is a division or two smaller, he would be the biggest name on Spence's record if Spence wins. Um, and maybe that says something that's not so great about Spence. After six years at a pro, he's climbed pound for pound list based on the eye test, not on really proving himself that much against elite competition. So actually is one of the narratives here. Is there a possibility that Spence is a little bit overrated? And, and are you at all disappointed in the level of his competition to this point, aside from Kel Brook, obviously? These are two separate questions. I, I'll, I'll answer the second one first. Yeah, I'm a little disappointed in his matchmaking. Uh, he hasn't been fighting nearly enough the last couple of years, uh, and he's really only faced one opponent in his career with a chance mm. to beat him, that being Kel Brook. Uh, now, as Pauli Malinaji said last week, and I tend to agree with him, Brook is one of the most underrated fighters of the era. His only losses are against Triple G in a fight in which he was moving up two divisions and was competitive before getting stopped, and Spence, where he was, again, very competitive before the fight was stopped in round 11. That's a meaningful win for Spence. And everything up until then was a series of good progression fights for Spence. I'm okay with the fact that he didn't face any real tests prior to Brook. But Brook was his only fight in 2017. Not what you want to see for a young fighter with real momentum. And then last year, he fought Lamont Peterson, who's a fine fighter, but obviously a full level below Spence. And then he knocked out Carlos Ocampo in one round. So, yes, I'm disappointed in the comp. But I don't think Spence is overrated. If he is, I guess I'm one of the people overrating <laughs> him. I think he's a special fighter. He just hasn't been given many opportunities yet to prove it. Yeah, he might not be the next Sugar Ray Leonard or anything, but he looks to me like one of those boxers, a skilled, pedigreed, slick, hard-hitting southpaw who would have fit in just fine in any great welterweight era. I don't think he would have been overmatched against... De La Hoya, Trinidad, and Corte, or against Mayweather, Pacquiao, and Cotto. I'm a believer in, in Spence. Mm. Um, shifting back to the guy in the opposite corner on Saturday, with Mikey Garcia, 
There was a sense for a while that his heart wasn't in boxing. Some felt he was looking for a way out when a headbutt broke his nose in the Orlando Salido fight. He was at one point pursuing a career as a police officer. He was inactive for a full two and a half years while in a dispute with top rank. But now he's back. He's fighting regularly and he's daring to be great against Spence. Is it time to put to bed any talk of Garcia not being a fighter through and through? Yeah, look, I was certainly one of those who not only signed on to that narrative, but pushed it a little bit. Um, and, and to some extent, for me personally, that was based uh, around a sit down I had with him at an HBO image shoot in either 2012 or 2013. I forget which. Um, and the way that he talked about being a fighter with a lot less enthusiasm, it seemed to me, than he did talk about the idea of being a cop. Hmm. Um, and, and I certainly thought that he was somebody who just happened to be good at boxing and drifted into it because it was the family business right. without necessarily being that into it. Um, and I think that was a bit perpetuated by by the way that he talked about it, not just to me at that one time, but generally. Um, you know, he was not an especially enthusiastic or dynamic interviewee. And I think it came across that he wasn't very enthusiastic about boxing, but just wasn't very enthusiastic about being interviewed. Um, he was just that kind of guy. And, and maybe also feeding into it a little bit was was the way he fought, which for a while was more technocratic rather than, you know, uh, emotive. Um, hmm. I wonder if he needed those couple of years. You know, you mentioned, you know, the two and a half years there that he that he sat out. I wonder if he needed them to decide that this is what he really wanted to commit to, yeah. um, you know, realize that he missed it, perhaps. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised when he sat out if he didn't come back. And I think probably a lot of people might have been the same. But but since he's come back, he's been better, arguably, than he even was before he left, because he's not just still displaying the skills. He's now showing power and, and, and a commitment to fighting as well as boxing. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, so I feel like Mikey Garcia Mark two version 2.0 is, is altogether more of a, of a fighter and seemingly more committed to the cause. And I got to say, <laughs> you don't take on this kind of challenge unless you're a real fighter. Right. Right. I mean, if you're like half only halfway into this, you're not fighting Errol Spence. Yeah, so. no, and, and you're, you're absolutely right to sort of draw that line. There seems to be Mikey Garcia before layoff and Mikey Garcia after layoff. Uh, they're both Mikey Garcia, but yeah, it's not quite the same guy. He's not fighting in quite yeah. the same way. Uh, he was not on my pound for pound list at any point prior to the layoff. He got on it pretty quickly after mm. returning, though. Mm. All right. So uh, as this isn't a Showtime fight, we're not going to make picks as part of our head-to-head -head picks competition, which is a pity because I would haul Eric in. Easily. <laughs> sure. You go ahead. I'm, and believe I'm just going to pick a draw every time out. <laughs> it's just worth it for, for like the infrequency with which it hits. It's going to be so worth it. Um, but we will mention. Uh, let's take a look here at what's on the undercard. We've got David Benavides against Jalian Love, uh, ten rounds of super middleweights. Luis Neri against McJoy Arroyo, ten rounds bantamweight, and. Chris Ariola apparently is still fighting, um, and he's taking on Jean-Pierre Augustine, uh, ten rounds in heavyweights uh also in action next weekend we have other cards as well uh, we have tevin farmer against jono carroll headlining at his own card from philadelphia on friday and mickey conlon taking on ruben garcia hernandez topping an espn plus card on sunday uh which is of course St. patrick's day uh so any of those fights of particular interest to you or is next weekend really all about spence and garcia 
none of it other than Spence Garcia is must-see. The Spence Garcia undercard is okay, I guess. Um, I've seen about enough of Chris Ariola. Benavides versus Love might be a decent matchup. Uh, the Philly card isn't bad, though. Uh, you have Katie Taylor on the undercard. You have Gabe Rosado versus Machit Suletsky. That's a good fight if Rosado has a little something left. Um, and I enjoy Tevin Farmer. Uh, he's up an, against an undefeated guy in Carroll. That's some solid Friday night entertainment. But clearly, Spence versus Garcia yep. is the main attraction of the weekend and of the whole month of March in boxing, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there has already been some boxing uh, of note in March. Um, let's talk for a few minutes just about that uh, from this past weekend. Uh, we'll start with light heavyweight fight from Turning Stone Casino. Uh, Dimitri Bivol going the distance for the third straight time, uh, but turning in a dominant boxing display against Joe Smith Jr. He won by scores of 118-110 and two scores of 119-109. We've talked about Bivol quite a bit. Um, back and forth. Uh, after this last outing, Eric, what do you think? Is he looking like the man to beat at 175 pounds? Uh, any other takeaways you have from this fight? So there are basically three fighters in the conversation right now for top dog at 175. Uh, Oleksandr Gvozdik, who mm-hmm. is the lineal champ. Sergey Kovalev, back on track now after the rematch win over Alvarez. And Bivol. I really hope these guys sort it out in the ring Uh, Mm and any combination of two of the three of them fighting each other would be great for fans and, and would make for an intriguing matchup on paper. And of course, Kovalev Bivol was the plan before Kovalev lost to Alvarez. So maybe it can become the plan again, but without having seen the three of them fight each other, my sense is that Bivol is the best of the three right now. I just need to drop my expectation that Bivol mm. is a puncher or a knockout artist. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he had some good knockouts against weaker opposition when he was first emerging, but he's really pretty close to a pure boxer, very slick, very skilled, very adept at controlling the distance. And he looked masterful in those regards against Smith, who proved both the perfect style, uh, as you suggested that, that he would, but also was imperfect in that, He's big and strong and tough and hard to knock out. So it went the distance. Um, two other quick observations uh, from from the fight. Smith had one good moment when he hurt Bivol as the bell rang to end round 10. And if that punch comes 10 or 15 seconds earlier, maybe Smith pulls off the upset. However, the if it had come 10 or 15 seconds earlier game maybe doesn't apply here because I suspect he only landed that punch so clean because Bivol was easing up just a bit as the bell Mm. rang. Uh, So that's one thing here. The other takeaway from this fight, add Joe Smith to the list of people who don't know what Born in the USA is about. Uh, He used it as his (laughs) ring entrance song. Uh, In in Smith's defense, he was negative five years old when the song came out. So he has a better excuse than uh, than Ronald Reagan did for not getting it. Uh, But you know, someone in his camp who's a little older uh, should know better, unless he was actually making some next level statement about having a problem with our government's relationship with the Russians right now as he was fighting a Russian. But I, I don't think so. I think he was going for patriotism here. And uh, and it's not actually the right song to do that with. That would be pretty amazing if he was like being really <laughs> meta. <laughs> yes. If you're listening, Joe Smith Jr., and you want to correct me. Call in. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, that was the Bivol Smith blowout. Uh, but meanwhile, we had a much closer fight in the welterweight division from Carson, California. Sean Porter took a split decision over Jordanus Ugas. 
One judge scored it 117-111 for Ugas. The other two favored Porter, 116-112 and 115-113. And it wasn't only close. It was maybe a bit controversial because Ugas landed a right hand in the 12th round and Porter went down, but it was ruled a slip. Kieran, did Jack Reese make the right call there? Um, a tough call, I thought, even after watching it on replay. I think that the sort of social media consensus is that, yeah, he blew it. But um, it's tough because a punch did land yep. and, and Porter went down right afterwards. But, you know, I think looking at the way that Porter went down and, and his subsequent reaction, you could make the case that the punch and the tumble was a case of correlation rather than causation. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know. I've seen them called for that. Huh? I mean... Uh, not infrequently, uh, but I suspect that Reese, being an experienced guy, was responding to the way in which Porter went down. That it, you know, it looked as if he was sort of slipping at the same time. But gosh, I've I've certainly seen that situation be called as a knockdown before. That's that's for sure, and that you know would have made a difference. Um, I, I gotta say, overall, it wasn't a really stellar performance from Sean Porter. I thought early on he was boxing quite well, and I was really quite impressed that he sort of reined in his more aggressive tendencies uh obviously coming in with a very specific game plan for ugas um you know looking to to land you know fast clean shots and move in and out but i thought that after the first couple of rounds ugas was timing him quite well and tagging him with some pretty good counters i think even beyond the knockdown non-knockdown i i think Ugas can perhaps feel a, a tad aggrieved uh, mm -hmm. at the decision. Uh, I mean, he said he was robbed, um, which one would expect. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't. It wasn't a tremendous performance. Had Ugas got the decision, I don't think it would have been necessarily a bad call. No, um, you know, I, I wasn't scoring it round by round myself, but it did feel like if I had to lean one way or the other. Uh, I probably would have leaned toward Ugas, uh, and I, I saw the round-by-round round scorecards were posted, and the one close card, 115-113 for Porter from Max DeLuca, he was the only judge who gave Porter round 12. So mm. if Reese had called a knockdown, and I'm not uh, I'm not saying that he should have, that uh, it was a very borderline case, um, but if he had, then assuming DeLuca gives Ugas the expected 10-8 round, he actually wins the fight. Yeah. Um, but regardless of who you thought deserved to win, my takeaway from this fight is similar to yours in that, you know, you pointed out Porter just didn't look that great. Uh, to me, this fight is a little further confirmation of what I said about Keith Thurman's recent struggle against Josecito Lopez, the tier separation at welterweight between the Spence Crawford tier and the Thurman Porter Garcia tier is becoming more and more clear to me. There, there are the A plus pound for pound guys, and then there are the A and A minus guys. Um, but I guess that statement will uh, blow up in my face if Errol Spence loses this coming Saturday. <laughs> right. Well, then maybe it's just a Spence Crawford Mikey Garcia tier. Right. As opposed to you know still maybe you know who the heck knows. I'm trying <laughs> to help, trying to help you out here. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, before we get into other news from around the boxing world, we want to take a moment and note that we are opening up the mailbag on Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. You may have seen something on social media about this, uh, but on some upcoming episodes, we will be reading your comments and answering your questions. So anything you want to tell us or ask us, just tweet it with the hashtag AskShowPod. That's A-S-K-S-H-O-P-O-D. AskShowPod. Uh, and to give you a little example of what we're looking for, 
The first one is on us. Uh, Kieran, I, I have a mailbag style question for you. It's a, a question I submitted to our friend Max Kellerman's Max Me Anything segment on his ESPN studio show, uh, and he actually answered it on air this past Friday night. I'm curious for your answer. You can take the full fight library of one boxer with you to a desert island. Those are the only fights you can watch for the rest of your life. Who you got? So I'm voluntarily removing myself to this desert island, or I'm, or I'm <laughs> constantly toting this library around with me, which is a fortunate thing, as I just happen to be marooned on this desert you, island. You might be overthinking power. the premise. Okay. <laughs> it's right, a hypothetical, right, okay? Right, we'll, discard, we'll discard the context here. Right. right okay. Thank you. So, obviously... Uh, I would be sorely tempted to go with Miguel Cotto uh, for reasons that will be entirely familiar to folks who've listened to our HBO podcast uh, over the years. Um, for those who don't know, uh, apart from the fact that Cotto was a tremendous fighter and consistently good fights, he was the first guy whose career I tracked ringside from prospect to contender to champion to veteran. Uh, and I know him a little bit and I like him. And if I had Miguel Cotto videos to watch, it would almost be like I had Miguel on the island with me and that would be <laughs> tricky. Um, so I'm very tempted to do that. But ultimately... I'm going to pick Mike Tyson. Um, I think, look, the first two-thirds or so of his career, uh, every time he stepped into the ring, the whole venture carried an aura of palpable menace. And, and that became clear, you know, that, that sort of came through the TV screen. And even now, when you look at his old fights, especially his early fights on, on YouTube, that's still very much the case. Um, he'd either blow guys out of there early in, in devastating fashion um or even when the fight stunk and the opponent was holding and it was going into the later rounds you still knew that if he landed one clean shot whoever was in there with him would end up flopping around the canvas like a dead fish um you know also to watch him in those early years it was a thing of beauty i mean early mike tyson really was a thing of beauty the upper yeah. body movement the combinations the hand speed uh, and, and for different reasons, even his later years were unmissable. Uh, he took his lickings like a man, or indeed a punching bag at times. Um, and his whole, the whole thing morphed into a sort of unmissable tragic comedy. And mm -hmm. um, and his outings over the latter part of his career was suffused with. And I cannot sufficiently stress the importance of the entertainment value of this. Um, there was layer upon layer of utter batshit craziness over the last part of of, uh, of his career, which manifested itself often in fights, which also makes him kind of uh, unmissable. So, yeah, for all those reasons, I'm going to pick Mike Tyson. So on the batshit crazy front, do you get the post-fight interviews? If, oh, if, yes. If, okay. Yes. All right. I mean, look, there's the eating of Lennox's children, obviously, is the best one. Um, and in particular, the, you know, the, the fact that right after the eating of Lennox's children is the praise be to Allah. That, right. that's, that's perfect. <laughs> there's the, I hurt my back. What kind of injury is it, Mike? Spinal. Right. I mean, right. that, I mean, just absolute, absolute classics, um, as well as, you know, such, such great hits as I'll try to break France, both his arm and, of course, the bite. I mean, it's, it's just it's endless. Yeah, if, if, if you include all that stuff in your Desert Island collection, it, yeah. it certainly enhances the case. It's Fading to Bolivian. How could I forget Fading to Bolivian? Right, yes, Fading to Bolivian, another classic. So many. <laughs> but I think you are maybe right to single out Spinal. That, that really is. It's hard to beat that for a single word answer to a question. Um. So seeing as this is all your premise um to which as you voluntarily head off to a desert island with a library of dvds <laughs> under your arm uh, right. who's, who's which fighter i think i can probably guess which fighter you're probably going to take with you uh, on video but uh who is it 
I'll stall for a moment before I confirm whether your guess, which I think I know what your guess is, uh, whether your guess is right. Uh, before I answer, I'll, I'll just I'll note how uh, Max Kellerman answered um, after flirting for a moment with the idea of Pernell Whitaker, an answer only Max could give, uh, and and Julio Cesar Chavez, an answer that I think a lot of us could get behind. And of course, you get to bring more than a hundred fights with you uh, if you take Chavez. Uh, but he ultimately went with the obvious choice, Muhammad Ali. I go in a different direction. Is this who you were guessing, Arturo Gatti? Yes. Yeah. I think it is much. Um, so much great action, so many stirring fights, so much drama. It gets me 30 rounds of my personal favorite fighter, Mickey Ward. Uh, and if I need to see a little true greatness once in a while... Well, I have Floyd Mayweather and Oscar De La Hoya to dazzle me against Gaddy. Um, for what it's worth, I traded messages with Max about his answer and my answer, and he made a great analogy when I said my answer would be Gaddy. He said that I would get bored of Gaddy fights after a while. Quote, it's like bringing a comic book to read instead of a novel, uh, which is an, an excellent an, an analogy. Uh, but I disagree that I would get bored of Gaddy. Uh, that said... If I wanted to find someone at the intersection of thrills and drama and also really meaningful fights against the elite at a top skill level with the highest stakes, give me a Vander Holyfield. Mm, yes. Yes. In, in which case I get two Mike Tyson fights. That's right. And some batshit crazy. There you go. All right, let's talk about uh, some other news stories in the boxing world. And we can't go a week without new drama at the top of the heavyweight division. Uh, two new developments to report this week. First, the sanctioning body whose belt Deontay Wilder holds ordered him to make a defense against mandatory challenger Dominic Brazil next, which is somewhat interesting because when it looked like Wilder was facing Tyson Fury, that same alphabet group ordered Brazil to fight Dillian White for an extraneous interim belt. But now they've just changed their minds and said, JK, Dillian, JK. Uh, and, and they've gone ahead and ordered Wilder Brazil. Um, I believe that was in the official memo where it was right. saying JK, Dillian. Um, it all seems uh, a bit irrelevant, though, uh, because Wilder and Brazil were already negotiating for a May 18th fight anyway. Now, I guess maybe we can be a little more confident that fight is coming. Uh, in any case, in related news, Boxing Scene's Keith Eidek reports that Dillian White is close to finalizing a deal to go with Top Rank and ESPN, which would put him in line to face Tyson Fury. Uh, however, Eidek reports that Fury and White would face separate opponents and build toward a fight. So if that's what they're building toward in 2019 we can be pretty sure Fury isn't facing Wilder later this year. At least that's my read on it, that, that Wilder Joshua is now looking more realistic than Wilder Fury 2. What do you make of all this, Karen? Wow. This, this may be above the heads of some of our younger listeners, but it sort of reminds me of an episode of Soap. <laughs> that's above my head, even. I oh, guess I'm one of okay. our younger listeners. I, I just oh, okay. missed Soap. I know of it, never saw it. See, but if you were a big fan, then then this the line going confused, you still will be after another episode of boxing is hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Oh, well, never mind. Um, yeah, look. Uh, yeah, I think as we talked about the other day, I certainly do think that um, uh, Joshua Fury certainly isn't happening anytime soon. Uh, Wilder Fury 2 increasingly feels like it isn't happening anytime soon. Um, and added to this also, neither uh, Mike Coppinger was recently reporting that Deontay might actually be talking with Dazone just to make things even even more messed up. Um, and even if he isn't, uh, Eddie Hearn did say 
at one point that, hey, if making Joshua Wilder means AJ fighting one time back on Showtime, so be it. So uh, who knows what's going to happen? I would agree with your sense that of the various matchups between the big three that we would like to see made, that one is perhaps the more likely. Um, I don't think we'll see Fury. It feels as if we're not going to see Fury in against either Wilder or Joshua anytime soon. But I am the man who once declared the odds the percentage odds of Mayweather-Pacquiao happening to be zero about right. six months before it actually happened. So, really, I mean, why really ask my opinion on this <laughs> or indeed many other matters? But um, uh, so there's some other uh, fairly major news actually. Uh, long last, uh, Gennady Golovkin has signed a new deal. It's a six-fight agreement with DAZN. A uh, first fight likely June 8th, and then possibly a third fight uh, with Canelo Alvarez in the fall if Canelo beats Daniel Jacobs in May. Uh, and the deal, uh, SI's Chris Mannix reports, includes the zone dates for fighters. Golovkin signs to his promotional company, uh, Triple G Promotions. Uh, so this all felt a bit inevitable, I think. It felt like this was the, uh, the natural landing place, although Golovkin was doing his due diligence with just about everybody. Um, but he's going where basically the other top middleweights are. Uh, any thoughts on who you might like to see Triple G face in June? And do you really believe that Canelo will indeed fight both Danny Jacobs and Gennady Golovkin back-to-back in the same calendar year? I'll first note that uh, I saw it reported that Triple G will make eight figures a fight, uh, which, if that's true, wow, good for him. Uh, but I'm not so sure about the zone business strategy, if he's <laughs> getting at least $10 million even for the tune-ups. But who knows if that's true, and, and certainly I'm no genius when it comes to running a business and negotiating purses and all that. Um, June opponents for Golovkin. Um, I want to be realistic about this. He's not fighting anyone who's a serious threat to beat him. Uh, If the goal is to set up a third fight with Canelo, they want him to win and look good. And he'll also, you know, he'll be coming off a a layoff equal to the longest of his career. So as much as I'd like to see him fight a Jaime Munguia or a Demetrius Andrade, it ain't happening. Not in June. Uh, I could see it being someone like the contender winner, Brandon Adams, maybe... Machic Suletsky if he beats Rosado this weekend. Someone just respectable enough without looking like a threat right. to win. Um, but it, it's a tough question to answer, you know, who who would I like to see him fight? Because any fight I'd be excited about isn't going to be the fight that, that's happening. Right. But I'd be cool with someone like uh, Suletsky or, or an Adams. Um, as for a third fight with Canelo this year... That would be a serious statement by Canelo. Uh, I think he's the slam dunk for fighter of the year if he takes those fights and wins both of them cleanly. Uh, But if I had to guess, I'm saying it doesn't happen. Uh, He could lose to Jacobs, of course. Uh, Although, as I tweeted, uh, especially with a Golovkin fight now being lined up, Jacobs' chance of winning a close decision just went from slim to none against Canelo. (laughs) Um, But... Those are two tough fights back-to-back. Canelo has this long-term contract. I think if he beats Jacobs, he takes a B-level opponent in September and waits for Golovkin to get just a little bit older, and I see Canelo Triple G3 as more like a, a May 2020 kind of fight. All right, now let's look ahead to every stoner's favorite day of the year, April 20th, 420. Several fights announced this week for that date. Uh, We got the Terrence Crawford Amir Khan pay-per-view undercard. uh, Three 10-rounders featuring up-and-comers at various stages. It's uh, Teofimo Lopez versus Edes Tatli, Shakur Stevenson versus Christopher Diaz, 
and Felix Verdejo versus Brian Vasquez. Uh, and on the same date, in a competing card on Fox, Danny Garcia headlines a triple header. He takes on Adrian Granados, supported by Andy Ruiz versus Alexander Dimitrenko, and Brandon Figueroa versus Yonfrez Parejo. Uh, anything stand out to you on either of those cards? And do you think the Fox card will affect the Crawford Khan pay-per-view buy rate? So I think what stands out to me most of all, I think that top rank card is, is really good. Um, you know, and it makes sense to make your first pay-per-view on a new platform, have a, have a strong lineup. Um, you know, you've got the guy who's probably at worst, the number two guy pound for pound in the world. Um, the most exciting prospect slash contender. I'm not quite sure where to put Lopez uh, right now in, in the sport. Uh, another exciting contender in, in Stevenson. And the guy who was once thought to be the most exciting prospect in a legitimate test to see if he can get his career back on track. So, so I just really like that card generally. I think the people who aren't going to buy that card aren't going to not buy it because of Danny Garcia against Adrian Granados. They're going to have other reasons, like they don't have the money or they just don't like pay-per-view or they're going to wait and find it online or something like that. But I, I can't see that there are very many people going, oh, I was going to buy that card, but Danny Garcia's fighting Adrian Granados on Fox. Um, although that is a decent fight. Um, Granados has turned into a, a really solid measuring stick uh, uh, for those those top guys. So um, I think that that's a pretty solid fight as well. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really see it. Uh, eating into the buy rate. Okay. Um, quick story to hit on here uh, involving a fighter featured earlier this year on Showtime. Um, so an arrest, an arrest warrant was issued this week for Javante Tank Davis, charged with misdemeanor assault for an altercation at a mall in the D.C. suburbs. Uh, TMZ reporting he allegedly shoved a police officer. Davis himself issuing a statement that insisted, quote, uh, I was not attempting to avoid uh, being served with a warrant that, quote, I fully cooperated with the police and also, quote, was never processed by the police or placed into custody. Um, of course, Javante has other legal issues hanging over him as, as well as this. Uh, we chatted with Javante in Las Vegas in January, and, and we both came away impressed, I think, that he seemed to be striving to get himself together. Uh, hearing this, does this suggest otherwise, or do you think this is a little bit of a tempest in a teapot? I was just going to say tempest in a teapot. You yeah. It. yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I use that phrase all the time. Um, you know, it's when you combine this, which might be a very minor thing, uh, or it might not, I guess we'll see, with a relatively minor thing like Gervonta needing two tries to make weight in February. Uh, I have to conclude that he is a guy who's saying the right things and can be charming when he wants to be, but he still has some demons and, and some discipline issues. Um, if we separate out just this incident, it doesn't seem like much, uh, especially if you take him at his word uh, and of course, innocent until proven guilty and so forth. But he has other incidents looming other legal things hanging over him so this right here this new news might be nothing at all but i think the overall maturation of tank davis remains very much a work in progress and just as a fan i really hope he gets it together without yeah. screwing up his boxing career yeah all right, let's end on a fun note, uh, one with crossover appeal. This is going to lead this episode of the pod to do huge numbers with the teen crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, pop star Demi Lovato uh, does some recreational boxing training, and she shared an Instagram this week that she knocked out her trainer's tooth at the gym, even though he was wearing a mouthpiece. Uh, her trainer is sports broadcaster Jay Glazer. Uh, she posted a video of him holding the tooth and her apologizing 
Many questions for you here, Kieran. Uh, as a middle-aged dude, uh, can you name a single Demi Lovato song? Uh, would you like to see the Claressa Shields Christina Hammer winner make a cash grab and fight Lovato next? And what are the chances that Demi Lovato will share a link to this podcast with her 71 million Instagram followers wow. if we wow. tag her? Wow. Um, well, let's take the first question first. Eric, I'm... Uh... Not only can I name one, I'm not sure which is my favorite. It's probably one of the seven top 20 entries that she's had on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. <laughs> it could be This Is Me, Here We Go Again, Skyscraper. Give your heart a break, heart attack, cool for the summer. But I think my favorite is Sorry Not Sorry. And it's purely coincidental that that sounds like a Wikipedia entry. Purely <laughs> Purely coincidental. <laughs> I was just going to uh, make that guess that you had gone on her Wikipedia page. Okay. <laughs> um, I Nobody can I... accuse us of not putting in the time and doing the research on this podcast. Exactly. Well, they could accuse us. <laughs> um, I suspect that our chances of getting her to link to or retweet this would be significantly diminished if she finds out that my first thought was, oh, yeah, that's the one who dated Pete Davison from Saturday Night Live, because apparently I get my Demi Lovato's and my Ariana Grande's mixed yes. up. <laughs> and are you but, aware of who Pete Davidson is dating now? Oh, yes, I am. I am and I hate him. I, I kind of thought that might be your <laughs> response. I have I have a similar response. Um and now I'm now I'm blanking on her Beckin, Kate Beckinsale. Kate, I was Kate blanking Beckinsale, on the name yes. for a moment, but uh, yeah, after after I saw the movie Serendipity, I had a little uh, uh, love affair in my own mind with uh, Kate Beckinsale. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, sorry, I got sidetracked in my in mind there. Um, as for uh, her fighting Hammer or Shields, isn't she like tiny? Wouldn't that be a little bit like getting Strisaket? So wrong beside a fight Canelo if Strisaket was just some random 115-pound Thai jockey or something, isn't she? Like, I don't even know. Jay Glazer must be really short, too. Like, how enough could yeah, you reach I, his mouth? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, think he, I think he is short. Uh, this gets even more off topic, but uh, let's not forget what happened between Canelo and Ulysses Solis, allegedly, oh, many years right. ago. So don't put it past Canelo <laughs> to face a little guy. Uh, but you may be right that Demi Lovato is, is not in the proper weight category. Yeah, so so no, as as is obvious, I, I know very little about Demi Lovato, but she does seem very nice. So no, I don't think I really wanted to fight either Christina or Clarissa. So okay, fair enough. So, so how did I do, was that kind of along the lines of the response you were expecting, or were you expecting a mm? <laughs> no? You did you did a good job. You had uh, something to say, but at the same time, you clearly my ignorance ex was clear. You exposed yourself as a. And and you didn't shy away from this, but as a middle-aged dude who didn't know who Demi Lovato was two days ago. As as demonstrated by the fact that my strongest reaction was to the Kate Beckinsale news. <laughs> there you go. She's, she's a little more in our demo. Exactly. Exactly. She may not think so, but yes. <laughs> All right. That'll do it. Um, half of the Showtime Boxing Podcast is heading north to the last frontier, Alaska. Uh, but we'll be podcasting anyway. Uh across thousands of miles as we look back on the Spence Garcia Rumble and look at other news around the boxing world. Until then, thanks very much for listening.